This is Africa News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Africa News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on Africa News Tonight... Kamal says he will welcome any extradition request that will enable him to expose what he calls the fabrications by the government. That's Mokandisi Dube on the arrest warrant issued for Botswana's former president. Details coming up. Also, we hear the latest on a racist attack in South Africa. Morocco pledges to be a link between the U.S. and Africa. And the world mourns the king of soccer. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. One of three white South African men accused of racially attacking two young black South Africans on Christmas Day has been charged with attempted murder and released on bail. A video of the men using force to prevent the two from using a resort to swimming pool went viral and raised the specter of past racial segregation under apartheid. The clash underscored South Africa's ongoing struggle with racism almost three decades after white minority rule under apartheid ended. Vicky Stark reports from Cape Town. Kobus Klaassen was the last of the three suspects to appear in the Bloemfontein Magistrates Court and faces the more serious charge of attempted murder. His two co-accused, Johan Nell and Jan van der Westhuizen, appeared Wednesday to face a charge of assault and were released on a warning. Klaassen, 48, who is seen in the video putting one victim's head underwater, was released on just over $1,100 bail. His attorney, Rochelle de Silva, read his affidavit in court Thursday, stating that he had no pending cases or prior convictions and would be pleading not guilty. Brian Makede is the father of one of the victims, an 18-year-old, and uncle of the other, a 13-year-old. He said he heard people at the Free State Province Resort telling the pair they couldn't swim in the pool and went to intervene. Then I said, but I don't understand you. You are just yelling at people. They must read the signs. That says residents only. They are residents here. They are booked in here. So then my boys just ignored them. They went to the swimming pool and we thought everything is fine. But then they stopped them. By the time we turned our back to check what was going on, the incident was captured on video by Nakedi's daughter and posted on social media. The Mossel's Port Resort and Conference Centre, while refusing to comment, also has CCTV footage of the incident. This was posted online by New York Times' Johannesburg Bureau Chief John Elligan. Nakedi says it is clear from the footage the two were not in the wrong, as some are alleging. He says they are receiving counselling. They fear for their lives because they are vilified. For example, there was some people who went about in the social media platforms and African print media where they alleged that one of the boys was actually dragging a three-year-old white little kid into the pool, which was awkward. Nakedi, a former African National Congress freedom fighter, said this is not his first brush with racism, but he maintains not all white people are racist. A minority of people who do not want to move with the nation must be exposed for who they are. South African Human Rights Commissioner Chris Nissen called it very alarming that racism is still the top complaint they receive. So the question is, have the South African 
society done enough to erase racism or has racism increased and people think that they can get away with racism. Nissen cited another case in 2022 where a white Stellenbosch University student urinated on the belongings of a black student. And a few weeks ago, a video also went viral with allegations that a white Cape Town pub owner had instructed his bouncer not to let black people in unless they were accompanied by a white person. The three suspects in this latest incident at the resort will appear in court again on January 25th. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. Botswana has issued an arrest warrant for former President Ian Kama, who is facing 14 charges ranging from unlawful possession of firearms to money laundering. Kama fled to neighboring South Africa a year ago after a bitter fallout with his hand-picked successor, President Mogwitsi Masisi. Kama was formally charged in April but has yet to appear in court. Mokandisi Dube reports from Habrone, Botswana. A Botswana court issued the arrest warrant Thursday, saying the former head of state, Ian Kama, should be arrested on site. Kama was officially charged in absentia in April 2022, but has not made a single court appearance as he is in self-imposed exile in South Africa. The arrest warrant for Kama stems from charges of the illegal possession of firearms, a crime allegedly committed in 2016. But Kama who ruled Botswana between 2008 and 2018, tells VOA he's being persecuted for his opposition to former ally President Mukwetzi Masisi. This warrant is the latest in a long line of actions that Masisi and his regime have targeted me with in order to try to remove me from the scene as we go towards the 2024 elections. I have been and I will continue to be more and more targeted in this manner because I remain the most constant voice condemning and exposing Masisi for the incompetent failure that he is. Kama says he will welcome any extradition request that will enable him to expose what he calls the fabrications by the government, but as he will tread with caution. As for am I prepared for the consequences? Well, as prepared as one can be, don't forget that these people have tried on three separate occasions to poison me. So that is what one is up against. But at the end of the day, we can certainly not allow this rot, this cancer in our country to continue. Kama quit the ruling Botswana Democratic Party in 2019 and is now a patron of the splinter Botswana Patriotic Front. He has indicated he is ready to return home without mentioning a specific date. Piers Pogom of the International Crisis Group of Southern Africa says it is important to ensure there is no interference in due process. Political disagreements are one thing. However, allegations of manipulating institutions for party political purposes is something quite different. So the arrest warrant from uh, dragging up an arrest warrant from 2016 and employing it six years later is, is going to be seen as some kind of, of political targeting. Uh, the integrity of state institutions in this context should be subject to much greater scrutiny to help uh, avoid disagreement deepening further. The arrest warrant could allow Botswana to seek Kamas extradition from South Africa. Pico says bringing the case to court could answer lingering questions. But also to assess exactly where uh, the problem lies, whether there is merit in the uh, case that is being put forward here, uh, or if indeed it uh, appears to be 
uh, the result of external pressure uh, to manipulate uh, a particular outcome. Kama was charged along with former intelligence boss Isaac Hossi, suspended police commissioner Gabe Zumakopem, and Victor Paletti, a former senior government employee. Under Botswana law, the illegal possession of a firearm carries a maximum sentence of 10 years in prison. Kondisi Dube for VOA News, Aboroni, Botswana. In hosting the U.S.-Africa Summit, President Joe Biden's administration wanted to show its commitment to Africa and increase cooperation on shared priorities such as climate change, food security and regional conflict. Morocco's Prime Minister Aziz Akanouch attended the summit and said Morocco can play a central role in the relations between Africa and the United States. He said his government will use all the means at its disposal in that role. Elizabeth Myers, chief legal strategist of Pan-African Institute for Municipal Development, discussed with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shenawi's ability, Morocco's ability to help the U.S. achieve its goals in Africa. I would say that the themes of the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit were very broad, much broader than just promoting business, economic success, and prosperity in Africa. It was also about fortifying democracy, peace, and security for African countries. And there are already so many areas Morocco is working with the U.S. on these, in addition to business and economic prosperity. Morocco is a key partner of the U.S. in Africa. It's already known as a stable, democratizing, and liberalizing Muslim nation. And as a business and trading hub and platform for the continent, it's already a leader in infrastructure, in energy development, and also peace and security on the continent. Morocco already aligns with U.S. priorities of economic, social, and political reform, as well as conflict resolution. It's involved jointly with the U.S. in military maneuvers, in counterterrorism and counterextremism activities, and also for many years now, the Millennium Challenge focus in Morocco has been on education and development. So I would say that some of the features of Morocco of being one of the most, shall we say, developed countries in Africa with its infrastructure on the ground, with its commitment to education and its commitment also to counter extremism, I think is are some of its special features that help it to work very well with the U.S. in achieving the objectives that were stated at the U.S. In addition to the political and economic announcements at the summit, one of the things that caught my attention was the appointment of former U.S. diplomat Johnny Carson as special representative for summit implementation. What is he going to have to do to ensure that the statements made in Washington become reality? This is absolutely a key factor because there has been skepticism by a number of actors as to, you know, is this just paying lip service once again to Africa? This was not the first U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, but Ambassador Johnny Carson, he has a very long career in diplomacy. He's worked in at least six countries in Africa. He's got a mandate to coordinate the U.S. and African governments, as well as, and this is really important, civil society, the private sector, and diaspora 
diaspora representatives in order to make sure that the results and the actions that come out of the summit are actually happen and are durable. So what this means is that he will have to reach out to a broad panoply of stakeholders. He'll also have to work with organizations and NGOs on the ground, such as the Pan-African Institute for Municipal Development and other actors and NGOs that are working at the fundamental building block level of local government and civil society. Because it's not just about enriching high-level stakeholders. It's about making changes at the people level, combating corruption, working on democracy building, and also creating sustainable opportunities for everyone, especially young people and women. And that's why the first day of the summit, the what they called the Diaspora Day, was so unique and so important. He's also going to have to work with the special 12-member President's Advisory Council on African Diaspora Engagement. And that is a group that Secretary of State Tony Blinken is tasked with establishing. Africa is ready for investment and projects and infusion of innovation and developing its young people's ideas. And so one of the biggest themes about the summit that I heard over and over again was that Africa has had enough aid. What it needs now is the real investment and hard work that will make these goals that were stated and these values that were espoused a reality on the ground in Africa. That was Elizabeth Myers, Chief Legal Strategist of Pan-African Institute for Municipal Development. She spoke with VOA's Mohamed El-Shinawi. As we approach the end of year 2022, VOA wants to give you, our loyal listeners, the opportunity to wish your loved ones a happy new year. Call us on our WhatsApp number 202-258-3076. Leave a brief message and listen for it right here on VOA. The number again is 202-258-3076. Let VOA help you bring cheers and blessings to friends and family by just calling 202-258-3076. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. Over the past 18 months, there have been seven coups or coup attempts in African nations. In Burkina Faso, Chad, Guinea, Mali, and Sudan, military leaders succeeded in seizing power. In Niger and recently in Guinea-Bissau, they failed. Kwaku Nuama is professor of international politics at American University here in Washington, D.C., I first asked him why coups are happening more frequently and could this pause a problem for fledgling democracies across the continent? Coups happen because the basic needs of the people are not being met and also because the laws and norms that regulate how we change bad performing uh, governments are not well established in some societies. And so in those societies, permission structures emerge that allow the military to take advantage and remove uh, the leader uh, supposedly on behalf of the people. 
So let's start with Mali and Burkina Faso, for instance. Terror affiliates driving instability in these African countries. In Mali's case, of course, you have the Tuareg problem in the north. Uh, it's um, The government has been trying to deal with it. But the military coming in and saying the elected government are not doing a good job. They should step aside and we're coming. That's not a solution. I think it actually can make the problem worse because some of those problems require solutions beyond what the military can provide. Sometimes it's dialogue. Sometimes it's bringing in mediators. And the military cannot just reduce all of this to just force. In Burkina Faso, which is also trending that way, we see the removal of an entrenched dictator. Now, I'm not saying that the problem is not there, but we've seen cases where Nigeria, for example, has dealt with domestic terrorism without a coup. In country like Guinea, Last year's successful coup came after President Alpha Conde changed the constitution and mounted a power grab that gave him a third term in office. Uh, that also mirrors Burkina because we saw Blaise Campari trying to do the same thing, you know, led to all kinds of protests. So situations where elected leaders violate the constitution and try to attain their rule beyond what is allowed. Those are soft civilian coups as well. And what they do is that they create opportunity structures for the military to come in, saying that you don't respect the constitution. We don't think that you are going to do good on your own. And in Chad, Professor, the military led a covert coup, installing the son of President uh, Idris Dhabi, himself a military commander, and calling it a transition. Exactly. So that's another violation of the pro-democracy norms. You shouldn't have these secessions. You know, you want dictator goes and then his son takes over. We have too many of those in Africa. And the continent doesn't speak out against those. So when you do that, you are saying to the rest of the people, you don't matter. In the case you're talking about, the military is dominated by the former president's ethnic group. And so for them, making sure that the secession passes through is very important because it's how they all benefit. And Professor, lastly, let's talk about uh, outside intervention related to coup d'etats in Africa, primarily Russia and China, to a lesser extent, maybe Turkey and the Gulf states like Qatar. Broadly speaking, these nations do not necessarily foment coups, but they do take advantage of instability. Yes. When outsiders engage with Africans, they are mostly interested in promoting their own interests. And, you know, that's how it works. We've seen case after case after case of African states unable to manage their own security and bringing in outsiders to help them. In the part of the places where we're looking at, particularly in the Sahel, we've seen France withdrawing and being replaced by uh, Russia, for example, uh, but we've seen Turkey. Basically, when outsiders come in, if governments can rely on outsiders to help them take and keep power, then those governments are less responsive to the needs of their people. So you have a social contract. The social contract between the people and the government. In these particular cases, the foreign backer inserts themselves in the social contract, usually in the position of the principal, and the government then becomes a client of intervening foreigner. And so the government, you know, doesn't care too much about what the people in the country want. They care about how they're going to satisfy the needs and interests of the foreign backer. 
And as long as that foreign backer helps them stay in power, they don't care. And eventually, it's the people that suffer because they cut all kinds of deals that hurt us in the long run. So this is, this is the problem. That was Kwaku Nwama, professor of international politics at American University. He spoke with me from Washington, D.C. Brazilian football legend Pele has died at the age of 82 after suffering cancer and cardiac problems during the past year. Over his legendary career, Pele led his national team to an unprecedented three World Cup titles and became known as one of the greatest sport player ever. VOA's Robert Rafael has more on the life of the international icon. The man who would become known simply as Pele dazzled fans on the World Cup stage for Brazil and in club games and international tours with his team, the Santos Football Club, before generating enthusiasm for the game in the United States, joining the New York Cosmos at the end of his career. He was born Edson Arantes do Nascimento on October 23, 1940. As a child, he gained acclaim for his soccer skills and signed with Santos at the age of 15. By 16, Pele was part of Brazil's national team, and in 1958, he made his World Cup debut at age 17. He is the youngest player to ever score in the Men's World Cup, ending up with six goals in the tournament in Sweden. Pele's two goals in the final match helped Brazil capture the 1958 title, and he led his team to two more World Cup titles in 1962 and 1970. With an international career that included 77 goals and 92 official matches, Pele was named FIFA's co-player of the 20th century, along with Argentina's Diego Maradona. In 1975, Pele joined the New York Cosmos of the North American Soccer League and played three seasons there. In 2015, Pele reflected on his life at the top of the game. I think the secret to success is to respect people, no? to be prepared always, and then never, never think you are the best. Thursday, France star Kylian Mbappe said that Pele's legacy will never be forgotten. And Pele's daughter, Kelly Nascimento, remembered her father, writing on Instagram in Portuguese, quote, everything we are is because of you. We love you infinitely. Rest in peace. Robert Raffel, VOA News, Washington. And the trial of 46 soldiers from Ivory Coast continued in a court of appeal in Mali today. The trial opened Thursday in the capital Bamako in the run-up to the January 1st deadline set by the Economic Community of West African States to either release the troops or face sanctions. The French news agency AFP says yesterday's hearings were held behind closed doors and under heavy security. The military government in Bamako, who says the troops are mercenaries, arrested the soldiers in July as they arrived at the airport to back up a German contingent of U.S. UN peacekeepers. AFP says the session is not open to the public, but that the International Committee of the Red Cross is attending as observers. An Ivorian delegation that flew to Mali for talks on the crisis last week said the issue is on the way to being resolved.
Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The United States welcomes the recent announcement by Sudanese parties of an initial political framework agreement. At a Security Council briefing on Sudan and South Sudan, John Kelly, political counselor at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations, said, This is an essential first step toward reestablishing Sudan's democratic transition. There is now a credible path to a final agreement that would take Sudan out of its current political crisis. In October 2021, Sudan's military led by General Abdel Fattah Burhan, overthrew a civilian-led transitional government, derailing... And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbil uh, Jackson and Fungani, and our uh, engineer, Nashwan Kali, Thanks for choosing the Voice of America.